Hey everyone, this is Chad Harms, the pastor of Creekside Bible Church. Thank you for taking time to listen to my latest sermon, a sermon on the Sermon on the Mount. It will play in just a minute, but before it does, I want to thank you for something and make you aware of something. First, thank you. Our sermon podcast had almost 15,000 listens in the last year. You listened to the sermons I preached this year from France, Spain, the Netherlands, Malaysia, Nigeria, Saudi Arabia, Mongolia, Ukraine, and others. You listened from all over the United States. And if you include older sermons that have gained traction, then you listened from over 50 countries. And this is all just through the podcast. It doesn't include our website, YouTube, or live streaming, which was a big part of what we did last year. I'm amazed at how far my sermons reach, but what amazes me even more is thinking about the people that these numbers represent. I really do marvel at the idea of someone in a country, maybe with little access to biblical preaching, listening to my sermon and it being used by God to change their life. That's amazing. Here's how there can be more lives impacted this year. If you leave a rating and review on whatever podcast site you listen on. I know, I know that that just seems so simple, but it really is how podcasts determine what gets heard. One of my most listened to sermons is on in-laws. It seems that people all over the world are looking for answers on how to deal with their in-laws. And man, I really want people to find those answers through biblical preaching rather than all of the other things that might come up when they search. And so please, 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 please leave us a rating and review if you find these sermons and this podcast helpful. Okay, one more thing. You may have heard me mention this on a prior sermon, but our website recently received an update to its sermon page. We've categorized many of our sermons, and now you can just click a category and see all the series that we've done in those categories. We're going to be adding more categories in the future, but for now, if you're interested in exploring, head over to wilsonville.church slash sermons. One example is that there's a category called Jesus Sermons. If you were to click on that, you'd be taken to like 30 different sermon series on the works, words, and nature of Jesus. If you want to know Jesus better and, and learn to know Jesus better while you're driving to work, for example... I think it could be really helpful to head on to our head over to our sermons page. So to summarize, I appreciate you listening. Please leave a rating and review and check out our new sermons page. Again, thanks for taking time to listen to this sermon. And as always, I hope that it will help you to learn and live more fully for the glory of God. Thanks for being with us. It was so fun to see the kids going down. And you know what else is really fun? Not having the kids scream while I preach this morning. So this is, this is going to be a different experience. Uh, I've been joking that if I, if I accidentally said something horribly inappropriate or just swore in the middle of a sermon, I wouldn't even know. Uh, I don't swear, uh, but I literally just haven't known what I'm saying some of the times because of, of, of the kids, who I love, by the way. Uh, I also want to point out that I'm doing something I haven't done in a while. I'm preaching from paper today. So if I lose my notes, uh, we couldn't find my iPad this morning. So, uh, so I'm preaching from paper, uh, which I have not done literally since the first iPad was about three weeks old. And so uh, this is going to be a different experience. We're going retro this morning. But today we do begin a new series of sermons on the Sermon on the Mount. And as I say that, it's kind of a new series of sermons. 
Because what we've done through the years is that we have, uh, we have done the beginning of the Romans on the Mount, the first chapter that covers the Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew chapter 5. And then in, uh, the second year we did Matthew chapter 6. Uh, and then last year got all weird. We were going to do Matthew chapter 7. You knew that last year got weird. I can tell by your eyes. But it got really weird. And so we didn't do Matthew chapter 7, which is the conclusion of this sermon. And we're going to do that today. But for those of you that don't remember what happened three years ago and what I said, I want to just let you know that the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' longest recorded sermon in Scripture, and, and it's really this brilliant, you know, short, shorter than I would ever preach, sermon that hits on so many important things. And I, I looked up what I said, you know, three years ago or whatever, and, and in my first sermon I, I quoted Gandhi a lot. I'm not a Gandhi fan, but, but it's interesting to me that Gandhi, not a Christian, not a Jesus person, didn't believe like us. He was like obsessed with the Sermon on the Mount and, and how, how amazing these words of Jesus uh, are, were. And, and I just want to read this to you again, some of you again, but uh, some of you the first time. I may say that I have never been interested, this is Gandhi, in historical Jesus. I should not care if it was proved by someone that the man called Jesus never lived and that what was narrated in the Gospels was a figment of the writer's imagination. For the Sermon on the Mount would still be true for me. And then he goes on to say, much, listen to this, much of what passes for Christianity is a negation of the Sermon on the Mount. On the mount, and I think there's there's some very convicting words there from Gandhi because because I think we look at this Sermon on the Mount. If you're a Christian, if you've read Matthew five through seven, we often look at it. And I grew up uh, with this belief. I don't know why. I don't know why I was thinking about the Sermon on the Mount when I was a kid. I don't know uh, how I came to this belief, but I came. I, I had this belief as a kid. It was prevalent in the churches I grew up in. I think. That, that suggested that the Sermon on the Mount was, was just really one of two things. One, it was this picture of what it will be like when, we, when Jesus returns and we can all live in harmony together and everything is perfect. Or, or two, it was this ideal for us to kind of think about and, and, and care about, but, but one that, that really couldn't actually be lived out in any meaningful way. So it was this, these great ideas, but it was like, hey, it was like this, fly to space with your hands only, because I know we can do that now, right? But like, just uh, like fly, you know, paddle and get to space. We'd be like, well, I can't do that. It doesn't matter if you tell me to space my arms out differently or, you know, get closer to my body or whatever it might be. I can't do that. And so I grew up, and I think in a lot of church settings, the, the Sermon on the Mount is simply this ideal that, that we actually look at and say it can't be lived out. And what we do because of that is that we pretend that it doesn't matter to try to live out the Sermon on the Mount. Now, I am a person who comes to this, if you, if you heard the first two chapters of me preach through that, I come to the Sermon on the Mount believing with all my heart that it is, is not just some ideal that can't be lived out, but an ideal that we should strive to be living out every single day, every single day. Now, Today we're going to look at the beginning of, of Matthew 7, and in at the beginning of Matthew 7, we see this, this passage of Scripture that is about not judging 
people. And a lot of what I'm going to say today is actually based on me just going back and listening to my sermon from uh, a different sermon series that was called Planks and Specks, where I talked about the Bible's kind of overarching view of, of judging. Because, because this topic of judging, it seems to be one that, that we make really black and white, really crystal clear, there's no nuance, but scripturally in the Bible, it actually is a very nuanced topic. If you want to hear those sermons, you can go to our website and, and click on the sermon series called Planks and Specs. I, I hashed out all of it. But when I approached it this week and studying for this sermon, this, this interesting thing uh, appeared to me. It came to me. It hit me. The last time I preached on this passage, the worldview judging very differently than it, it does today. In fact, I said in that sermon several, several years ago that, that the greatest sin of our society at the time, the greatest sin of our society was being judgmental. And, and what struck me this week as I was reading and listening was, was that in some ways the opposite has become true in our society today. Not judging people according to how society says we ought to judge them has in some ways become the greatest sin. Uh, an unwillingness to condemn that which society says we must condemn and more specifically, the people that society says we ought to condemn has now become in some ways a greater sin than, not, than being judgmental altogether. And I'll come back to that in a few minutes, but it changes really what I think we must emphasize, not the truth of this passage, but I think it changes what we must emphasize in our hearts as we, as we read the words of Jesus on the topic of, of judging. And, and here's, here's what Jesus says. This is how it begins, Matthew 7, 1. It's not the beginning of the sermon, but it's the beginning of this passage. Do not judge. Do not judge. Now, this is for a lot of people, the only thing that they know about the topic of, of judging in the scriptures because it's, it's, like a, it's like a trump card, right? Like, like you bust this out when somebody looks at you and says, hey, you shouldn't be doing that thing. Whether you grew up a Christian or not a Christian, you just said, well, doesn't the Bible say you shouldn't judge me? Like, you can't judge me. The Bible says not to judge me. Again, it's more nuanced than that. I think that we'll see so much in what Jesus says here. But first, what's really important is, is what does this word judge even mean? Because if you don't know this, the Bible is not written in English. And so we come at this and we hear the word judge and we have our own you know, presuppositions, ideas about what this means. But this Greek word, it doesn't exactly align with, with our English understanding of what it means to judge somebody. Here's, here's what the Greek word means. I think it gives us, it helps. It means to divide, to separate, to not make a distinction, to come to a decision, to judge, to pronounce final judgment, not merely to sentence, uh, not merely sentence of condemnation, but also a decision in anyone's favor. That's, that's a little more important than maybe what we have in our heads. And I would just point out and have you noticed at the beginning of that, is to not divide or, or to separate. And as you hash this out and you begin to look at uh, the nuances of the New Testament, you quickly begin to see that there are, there are at least three things that, that Jesus does not mean. I know it's kind of a double negative. There are at least three things that Jesus does not mean when he says, do not judge. 
The first is this. We, he doesn't mean that we shouldn't make judgment calls. Just after this, as Jesus moves towards the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount, he tells us not to throw our pearls before swine. And we'll talk about that uh, next week. I'm going to preach on that. But, but in, in some ways, you have to make a judgment call about what your pearls are and who the swine are, right? That requires making a judgment call. Just you know, after this, before this, all around this in scripture, we talked about it in our sermon last week. In fact, the Bible and Jesus himself says that we must be careful, watch out for, stay away from false teachers. That requires making a judgment call, right? We must determine who the false teachers are if we are going to watch out for those false teachers. So Jesus does not mean don't make judgment calls. Thing number two that he doesn't mean, and perhaps this one is the one where where people pull out that card and they say, wait, don't judge. It it does not mean that we shouldn't have moral standards. That would fly in the face of the entirety of the Sermon on the Mount. That would fly in the face of so much of what Jesus taught. That would fly in the face of what is commanded to us in Scripture. That would fly in the face of so much of, of what it means to live out the Christian faith to say there is no moral standards. It's interesting because, because one of the things that separates us from much of the world is that we believe in a universal Morality. Now, when I say much of the world, I mean, I guess, much of uh, American culture today. We believe that there is a universal morality that is outside of ourselves. It is not up to us to determine what is right and wrong. We feel that, right? Even though some people would argue against that, we completely feel that because we look around at the world and we just intuitively, we're like, well, that was wrong. When you hear about somebody shooting somebody, you, you don't go, I wonder if that was a good decision or not, right? You just... You just think that was, that was wrong. That was wrong. And so Jesus does not mean, cannot mean, that we don't have moral standards. And the last thing, maybe, you know, more controversially, he does not mean that we shouldn't point out the immorality in others. Now, I know this gets a little bit contentious, and there's a couple of things that, that must be noticed. But first, you need to listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 18, 15 through 17. And there in Matthew 18, 15 through 17 is Jesus really only teaching specifically for what we call church. So it's the only time that Jesus talks about not Christians, but like Christians together and what our relationship looks like. And this is, this is what we read there. If your brother or sister sins, well, that implies that there's a morality If your brother and sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Now, I want to just say, I want to point something out here. This uh, Jesus' words, it, it doesn't mean that, that, we, that we point out Christ, uh, sins to, to everybody in the world. Notice that he says brothers and sisters, and that will come out later. This is about how Christians interact with one another, not how we interact with people who aren't Christians, who don't claim to be Christians, who don't subscribe 
to our morality. We'll come back to that in a second. But first, here's, here's some things that I, three things that this does mean. When Jesus says, do not judge, he doesn't mean that we shouldn't make judgment calls, that we don't have moral standards, and even that we don't point out the immorality in others, but he does mean certain things. And here's, here's what I think he means. Here's what seems to be true according to scripture. We don't decide, we don't make divisions between who is good and who is bad. I think the actual word of the, the definition of the word judge really makes that clear, right? This is about dividing or separating or making a distinction between people. Scripturally, there are two types of people. God shows us that there are two types of people. Those are, there are those who are sinners, and then there are those who are sinners who have been saved by our Savior, Jesus. For us to make any other distinctions because of the types of sins, the, the, you know, the, the badness or the goodness of a person, that is where we get into becoming judgmental. That is where we become judges and we go against what Jesus has said here. There is no place in Christianity for Christians to decide who is good or bad, who is savable or not savable, who is lovable or unlovable, who is worthy or unworthy, because none of us are worthy, who is, I said, lovable or not lovable, because, because all of us are in the same boat in regards to the fact that we, each and every one of us, rejected God, we sinned against God, we've broken that universal morality, and we all stand to be condemned. But Jesus, Jesus came to save us. And so the only distinction that should be made in people is whether they've placed their faith in Jesus as, a, as their savior or not. For us to say, like, you know, you did this thing in your past, and so therefore you aren't as good as me, that is absolutely wrong. But we see it in, in the world today, right? This is, this is how our world operates. And this is what I think is so different than when I preached on this passage, however many years ago I preached on it. Because I could just, I, I just some names, maybe you, you know, depending on what, who you are and what you're into. Like J.K. Rowling, the world has, has said that she is bad now because of her stance on transgender issues. She has been declared, that's the author of Harry Potter. I'm not sure if you knew. She's been declared... At, not good, not good by the world. I think of Morgan Wallen, and he's a country singer, bad. Like the world has declared him, he's bad guy. Bill Cosby, we all know that one, right? Bad, he's bad now. Now look, again, we have a universal morality and we can look at some of the things that people do and we can recognize that they are sinful, they go against the will and nature of God. The things that they do are bad. But for us to hold things against people and declare that we, in some ways, which leads me to my second point, that we are superior to others, that flies in the nature of what Jesus wants from us. Do not judge means refuse to divide people into categories except for whether or not they have become Christians or not Christians. The very word declares that for us. And in that, we don't see ourselves as superior to others. It goes with the point I've already made and, and the next point. I know that, I think many people have been hurt by Christianity because they have committed sins and they are the sins that Christians have said that sin is too bad. That sin, we don't like you anymore. That sin, we will judge you as not as good, not in our category anymore. And, and, and people have looked at them and said, I'm superior to you because I haven't done that thing. And it, it ruins people because they, they go, 
They're like, I guess I'm not good enough to be a Christian. I guess I don't belong there. I guess I don't fit in there. I guess, you know, all, all of these things. And, and when Jesus says to not judge, I think scripture, all of scripture hashes this out. It means that we never think of ourselves as superior to others. We may see that their sins, the sins in their lives, and we'll come back to this, and we, we may try to help people out of their sin, but we never do it thinking that we, we are better because, because we recognize that we are sinners who have been saved just like they are, or, or they may be sinners who need to be saved. Now, the, the third thing I think this means is that we, don't, we do not punish now, Jesus has commanded, we read it, to, for Christians to call one another out on each other's sins. That's part of being a church. That's part of being a Christian. It says first by yourself and then with someone else. And then as a church, we, we call people out on their sin. But what that passage does not mean and how it's so often used is that we punish people for their sins. I have this... <laughs> This story that I heard many years ago, that's, it's, and it's not uncommon. I've heard multiple versions of this same story. But uh, a friend of mine, they, they did something very stupid teenager. It involved a car and uh, did something, broke law, did bad things. You know, it was not a, good, not a good situation. It was both sinful and illegal, right? And man, they did it. They got in trouble. They were brokenhearted, repentant asking the right people for forgiveness, feeling immense sorrow. And the church came to the parents of this young man and said, because they did this, we need to bring them in front of the church and, and condemn them publicly. We need to show everybody what they did and how bad they did and you know, what a sinner they are. We need, we need to punish them. Now, this is not at the heart of, of Matthew 18, which I've read, and I think it's exactly at the heart of what Jesus is saying when he says, do not judge. We are not the ones who punish. The goal of all Christian calling out on sin, the goal of talking to people about their immorality, the goal is, is simple. It's correction, repentance, restoration, but it is never punishment. There is, I do not believe, room in the Christian world for, for somebody sinning, feeling terrible about it, apologizing to God, apologizing to other people, leaving that sin behind, and then Christians coming along and saying, you know what? Because you did that, we're going to make you feel worse. There's no room for that. Now, culture says that we must hold things over people forever now. But in Christianity, we say once you've said it to God, once you've asked for forgiveness, once you've stopped, there's no reason to punish you anymore because you, like me, have been saved by grace and will offer that same grace to you. I mean, there's, there's, it's just, when Jesus says do not judge, Jesus is saying that we, we are not the executioners, we're not the people who punish. That is not our job. Listen to the feel of, of Galatians 6.1 and some other passage, passages. Galatians 6.1. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently, but watch yourselves or you also may be tempted. We should, we should restore people gently or in love. Listen to 1 Corinthians 16.14. Do everything in 
love, there's this wonderful idea in second and third John. It's truthing in love. It's a weird, it's, the Greek doesn't translate to English very well. But we tell people the truth, but we do it in love. And so often when we talk about other people's sins, it's not truthing in love, it's truthing in condemnation. And when Jesus says, do not judge, he's declaring that we ought not do that. In 1 John 5 to 16, it says, if you see any brother or sister commit a sin that does not lead to death, you should pray and God will give them life. We should be praying for people who are sinning, not condemning people who are sinning. And then in 1 Corinthians 5, 5, notice this one. It sounds, it's such a, it's such a tricky little verse that I'm not gonna dive into, but just notice the feel of it. 1 Corinthians 5, 5, he's talking about a guy who's wrapped up in sin, rejecting the, the will and ways of God. And he says, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Notice the ending part, right? So that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Even something so harsh as, as Paul saying, just let him go. Stop trying, you know? I mean, if he's gonna go down that path and we've talked to him and he's, I mean, we're just gonna let him go, but we're letting him go, not because we don't love him or care about him, so that he'll go so deeply into evil that maybe, maybe one day he'll return and he'll enter heaven with us. It's clear when you read the whole of scripture that, 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 that when, we, when we talk to other people about their sin, we never do it to punish. We never do it thinking that we're better than others. We never do it deciding that they are, you know, in the wrong category, the wrong type of person. We only do it out of love because we want to see people live the incredible life that God has called them to. We don't drag people in front of the church to humiliate and shame them. That is not the Christian way. Instead, 2 Corinthians 2, 7 through 8, you ought to forgive and comfort him, talking about a person caught in sin, so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. As a person committing wretched sins, you forgive them so that they are not overwhelmed by sorrow and you reaffirm your love for them. That is the Christian way. No matter how bad, no matter how sinful somebody's been, our goal is restoration. Our goal is repentance. Our goal is that they would live the life that God would want them to live, not be condemned forever because of something they've done in the past. And as I said, this man, this was not an issue, I don't think. If I go back in time, like we just said, don't judge. Society said, do not judge. You know, leave people's sins alone. Don't even ever have a moral standard or whatever. And now, and I look, I, I care deeply about this. We live in this culture where, where we say, if you did this, then we no longer like you forever. <laughs> like that's just it. And it is not, look, our society can do whatever it wants but it is not the way of the people who follow Jesus. That's the truth. We help people leave their sin. We do not condemn people after they have left it. It's not the way of Jesus. We do, in, in the words of Jesus, the idea of Jesus here, we do not judge because we don't look at people and put them into different camps and say, kind of good, you're okay, you're not so okay. We don't put people into camps. We don't see ourselves as superior and we do not punish and then jesus says this thing he gives a reason or you too will be judged for in the same way you judge others you will be judged and with the measure you use it will be measured to you now this is probably eschatological in nature which means uh, about the end times like when jesus returns 
If that's true, which it probably is, we don't exactly know what this means. It it can't mean that being judgmental in the way Jesus is speaking about results in going to hell. There's no room for that. But there is this, this picture in scripture that we'll have to answer for our sins even if we go to heaven. We'll sit there and we'll talk to God. We'll talk to him about our sins. And maybe there's some of that in there. Like maybe Jesus can be like, hey, you know, you were, you were kind to that person that sinned against you. And, but I don't know how that looks because Jesus is gonna be so kind to us anyway. Because all those sins, we'll go, yeah, you deserve hell, but... Thanks for dying on a cross for me, I get in. So we don't know what that looks like, but, but what interests me about this passage is it never actually mentions God. And so part of it could just be that the way we judge others, you know, others will judge us similarly. I think that's kind of true in life, is it not? Like it seems that our harshness towards others when they have fallen or have sinned is kind of reciprocated in their attitude towards us. Have you ever, have you ever like, done something to a good friend and and they were just so kind and so cool about it and like you don't need to apologize or whatever and then and then they turn around and they do something to you and and you have more of a reaction to want to say like you know what don't worry about it but if they had you know yelled at you and acted like they hated you and not talked to you for a month you would you would feel a little bit like i'm going to do that too now look whether we know exactly or not what it means i'm not i don't um but here's, here's, I think, the overarching theme. Basically, we should live out the golden rule when it comes to how we judge people, how we look at other people's immorality and sinfulness. How we judge others will be reciprocated, perhaps by others, but ultimately by God in some way that, that I think is mysterious to us right now. And so here's, here's the question that you have to ask yourself. If you were blatantly sinning, how would you want others to respond to you? If there was a sin in your life that you were refusing to give up, how would you want others to respond to you? I think for every Christian in the room, you know, there's this initial, like, I don't want them to say anything to me, right? Like, that's stressful. But deep down inside of us, we love and value the people who will call us out on our wrongdoings in a loving, kind, gentle, restorative, gracious way and so therefore that's how we should respond to people in their sense i think i've told you this before but i want to i want to tell you it again i i i uh you know i was i was dating somebody in college and um and it wasn't it wasn't good for either of us i would say and and i remember that a couple people in my life basically said you marry that girl and I won't be at your wedding. You need to understand that. Not because, just because it was so unhealthy. And they saw that and they called me on and they talked to me. And what, how do you think I responded in the moment? Not so well, right? Like, I thought you were a real friend or whatever it might be. But, but sitting here, I don't know, however long later, lots of years, I've been married a long time now to a different person. Um, and and uh, those, like, how awesome were those people to me? to care about me enough, to say it gently, to never condemn me, to never say we're not friends anymore, you know, like you're an idiot, I can't believe you don't take my advice, but to just tell me the truth and try to help me see that there was a better way for my life. That's how I want people to treat me and that's how I wanna treat people when they're stuck sinning or doing things that they ought not 
be doing. The golden rule must be lived out when it comes to how we interact with others around their sinfulness, around their wrongdoings, around the things that they are doing that God does not want them to do. And then Jesus gives this this illustration. He says, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Side note, parenthetical, I love the idea that Jesus was a carpenter's son and how like this illustration would have just connected to him so easily, right? Like he'd probably seen sawdust in his dad's eyes before, you know, probably his own. Uh, and so that's, that's, that doesn't add or take away from our passage. I just love that thought. Uh, but the first thing to notice here is, is this, brother's eye. And the reason that we notice that is because it is our responsibility to help other Christians stop sinning, but it is not our job necessarily to help non-Christians stop sinning. Now, I'll come back to that in just a minute, but uh, again, I wanna remind you that that we have an obligation because of what Jesus says here, and the obligation is that if you know another Christian who is blatantly, openly sinning without repenting, without trying to stop, I think that's the real key. If you know a Christian who is not trying to stop sinning in whatever way they're sinning, it becomes your job to try to help them leave that sin behind. But on the other side of that, it is not your job to take sawdust out of a Christian's, a non-Christian's eyes. We help fellow Christians, and here's what we do for non-Christians. We try to lead them to Jesus. The world, my goodness, Christian culture, I think has had this backwards for so many decades. We ignore the sins of the people who sit next to us in church, and we scream and yell about the sins of the people who don't come to our churches. We would much rather point the finger at those we don't know and condemn them and talk about how bad they are and how culture is falling apart than we would look at each other and say, hey, let's have deep enough relationships that we can actually call each other out on these sinful things. Our job with those outside the church is simply to tell them that there is a God who loves them, who died for them, so that they might leave those sins behind. It's not our job to talk every person into our morality. If a person is not a Christian, they've never subscribed to our morality. They've never said, hey, I want to live like that. And so it is presumptuous and arrogant of us to try to make them live how we think they ought to live. Now, that doesn't mean that we never talk about sin because people, <laughs> one of the great tricks of Satan in our country has been to, I believe, to, to try to make people believe that there's no such thing as sin and there's no such thing as universal morality, that it's up to you what's right and wrong and however you feel at the time, that determines what is good and bad. And we have to help, don't hear me wrong, we have to help people see that there is good and bad. We must have conversations that are full of salt, as the scripture says, that help people understand the importance of Jesus. We can't pretend to the outside world that sin doesn't exist and then say, but by the way, I know a savior for your sin. We must show people their sin, but it is not our job to come along and say, hey, leave that, you know, stop doing whatever, stop doing whatever. It's our job to say, you need a savior. You need a savior. Now, as we help our brothers and sisters, remove the sin from their lives. There's a couple of 
There's a couple of important things here that Jesus says. There's a couple of, of requirements in order to make this happen. And the first is that we must remove the plank from our own eyes. Now, first, I want to say, because that, oh, I'm always going to be a sinner until Jesus comes back. You're probably going to always be a sinner until Jesus comes back. And so it would be easy to make the excuse like, well, I'm always going to be a sinner, so I never have to help anybody else stop sinning. Uh, but listen, I just think this is so important. Oftentimes, Christian growth is just two people with sawdust in their eyes helping each other remove it. It's a little bit messy, right? Like, my eye's blurry. Help me to get, let me help you. And they're saying, my eye's blurry. Let me help you. Like, that's, that's Christianity a lot of times. So we can't take this as Jesus saying, like, you know, until you're perfect, you can't do anything. But it is, Jesus is saying, if there is blatant, uncared for, un repented sin in your life, then stop worrying about the other people and deal with your own thing. We're always going to be sinners, but if there's sin in our lives that we just don't care about, and we're looking around saying, you got sin, and you got sin, and you got sin, then Jesus, I think, would say, wait a minute. Look at your own sin first. I saw this um, by, on Instagram, just kind of by chance, uh, this quote, and uh, if I had my iPad, I'd had it, but I couldn't find my iPad. It basically just said, uh, Christians, Christians love spending more time talking about other people's sins uh, and less time focused on removing their own sin. And, and that's so true, right? Like that, we, we, that's us. We do that. And so Jesus is saying, you can't be the guy who's blatantly sinning without trying to stop. I think that's a really important distinction. You can't just be walking around, sinning, not worrying about stopping, and going, hey, you got sin and you got sin. Let me fix that for you. You must do your best to stop the sin in your own life while you're helping other people stop the sins in their lives. Now, the second, the second requirement. So the first is you just don't walk around with huge sins that you don't care about. The second requirement is that we can't be hypocrites. Now, this is a Greek word that came from theater. It means basically to play a part, like acting. And, and, and man, if there's anything non-Christians love to call those of us who are Christians, it used to be judgmental, and now it's hypocrites, right? Like this is, this is just the blatant, sweeping, overarching, why don't you like Christians? Oh, they're all hypocrites, right? And, and normally when people use that word in Christianity and outside of Christianity, normally when people use that word, what they mean by hypocrites is simply not perfect. That's all, that's all it usually means. Like people will say, I'm not going to become a Christian because Christians are hypocrites. And, and if, you just, if you just ask, well, what do you mean that? But, well, I, I knew a Christian who, was, who did bad things. I go, every Christian I know does bad things. Does that mean that we're all hypocrites? I mean, every person that I know doesn't live to the standard that they've set for their lives. That's, if that's a hypocrite, then the whole world is hypocritical. And that's not at all what the biblical idea of hypocrisy is. The idea of hypocrisy is someone who plays a part, someone who pretends to be a way that they are not. It isn't, I'm a Christian who still sins. It's, I'm a Christian that's not sinful. It's acting like you have figured it out, that you have it all together. The Sermon on the Mount is full of the word hypocrite. And if you read Matthew 5 through 7, you quickly see that when Jesus says hypocrite, he doesn't simply mean imperfect. Jesus is referring to people who are acting one way, but they're not really. Like people who make a show of giving money to the poor or to the temple and are like, look at me, I'm so generous. It's like, you're not generous. You just, 
gave this one time in front of everybody. Or people who go out on the streets and they're praying super loud. And it's like, well, they never pray when nobody's looking. What Jesus refers to when he talks about hypocrisy and being a hypocrite is people who are simply acting without being. And, and here, what Jesus is saying is that if we're gonna help someone stop sinning, then, then we don't approach it with an attitude that says, I've got it figured out. We approach it with an attitude that says, I understand how hard it is to stop sinning because I struggle to stop sinning. I understand that, that I am just a sinner saved by grace, but I love you and I'm gonna try to help you anyway. Hypocrisy, when it comes to other people's sins, is like, hey, <laughs> I got it figured out. Let me help you get that out of your eye. Let me help you stop doing that because look, I've figured it all out. When on the inside, they you, me, we have not figured it out because we're not going to figure it out this side of eternity. If we're gonna help somebody stop sinning, we can't have blatant sins in our life that we're not trying to stop, but we also can't act like we've got it figured out. We must remember that we are no better than the other person. We just have different struggles. I love the phrase, it's an old phrase, but for the grace of God, there go I. And at every turn, I've tried to see that. And to be honest with you, the older I get, <laughs> the more clear it becomes that it's true. Like, I, there is nothing, and maybe you can judge me because of this, but I look at every person and everything they've done and every situation they've ended up in, and I think, if it wasn't for God's grace, I could be all of that. I could do all of that. Like that could have been me. I used to, man, and maybe this is too open, but I used to be a person that thought, there's no way I could do that or that or that. But standing here today, coming up on 38, <laughs> I, I could have done any of it. I could have been any of it. I could have been a person that you <laughs> never would have liked because I was so evil. And it was, only, it was only by God's grace that, I, that I've done anything good, anything productive, anything holy. And, and I think that sometimes when we see another person sins, it's easy just to go like, yeah, I could never, you know, but I'll help you. But I think we must approach it with, I could, but I didn't because of Jesus, and so I'll help you. I think there's three things that are important if we're actually going to help others stop sinning, and it's that we must re review self. We gotta look at our own stuff and see if we got sins that we're not trying to give up. We must do our best to re remove sin and then we must remember our salvation. We must review self, remove sin and remember our salvation because only when we follow Jesus in this can we truly help other people. And let me tell you, man, let me tell you, we live in a world with far too much judging going on we also live in a world where far too much sin is just embraced as okay. And, and in these words that we've seen today, go back and read them again if you need to. I think Jesus gives us what is the perfect solution to not being a person who just embraces sin and says, oh, everybody does what they want. And also not being a jerk that just condemns people who, who happen to do things that are, you know, not the things we might do. It's that we review self, we remove sin, and we remember salvation. I hope that we would be a church, no matter whether the world wants to be like hypocrites, judgmental, or whatever, that any person who would come here and meet us, they would know that we are serious about removing sin. We are serious about that. 
but they also know that we are serious about not judging in the way that Jesus has not called us to judge because those are the types of churches that I think people are drawn to because they know that we have a different standard than the rest of the world, both when it comes to removing sin and when it comes to looking at sinning and, and, and recognizing that it is real, right? And so be a person that reviews self, removes sin, and remembers salvation as you help other Christians get out of their sin too. Let me pray that we'll be a church.